0: Our napkin, right? We've been drawing out this map, this picture, in anticipation of what is to come. And so the first Sunday, Eric talked to us about what the church age is, and he had this big whiteboard up here, and he talked about the age that was, right, post fall of brokenness, and the anticipated coming of the kingdom of God, where all things will be restored the new heaven and the new earth. And when Jesus came, a lot of his followers were expecting that he would establish in full that new heaven and that new earth, but he said, only in part this time, right? A two-time coming. And so we've got this church age, or this time between the times, or as we often call it, the already, but not yet. And in the already, but not yet, there's evidence of the kingdom of God, right? Like when Jesus heals the sick or casts out demons, right? Or when someone experiences the love of Christ for the first time. But there's also plenty of evidence of brokenness. And that's the age that we live in as ambassadors of the kingdom of God in a time in which we can embody, right? Represent God's kingdom before it returns in whole. Unfortunately, as Eric talked about, there's coming a time that we call the tribulation. It's going to be bad. There will be a man of lawlessness, right, who will likely uh, sit on a throne, an earthly throne, and rule. Uh, things will be rough, especially if you're a believer. And one of the things that we talked about is this idea of the rapture, that, uh, that we'll be caught up into the clouds with Christ, right? And a lot of people believe when we're caught up, we just disappear, And then the earth remains really bad, right? The Tim LaHaye left behind series sort of thing. This is unfortunately not the case according to pretty much all of, well, yeah, all of the biblical witness. So what will happen is that when Christ returns after a period of great tribulation, we will be caught up with him, those who are dead first and then those who are alive in Christ, and we will come down and we will reign with God on the earth. It's crazy. called the millennial reign. Christ will come again, or according to Revelation, actually Satan will be loosed on the earth for a short period. He will be destroyed, cast into the lake of fire, along with all those with him. Every person will be raised, resurrected, both righteous and unrighteous, to be judged. And then the age to come that we all wait for. Remember this? Can you draw this on a napkin? So I don't need to preach anymore because Eric already did a good enough job. You got it done. Today, actually, what we need to do is land this plane back to earth and ask ourselves, okay, this was fun, and it is fun, but also it's important. And it means for us, not it will mean something for us in the future, but right now, understanding these things and understanding the promises of God and the coming kingdom of God and especially what happens at the judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of our bodies is I would argue maybe the most central piece of theological doctrine to our faith and how we live in the world. So we're going to close out this series. The focus in the finale will be Resurrection. Let's pray. Father, enliven our spirits and enliven our ears to receive your good word, to hear something true this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, and would we, your people, receive them as ones who trust you know you, who are known by you, have your way in us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 once again. Eric was in this chapter last week as well. Uh, We are going to spend... Uh, even more time in it, he focused on a middle chunk of verses, and he talked about the millennial reign uh, in light of these verses from Revelation 21. We're going to kind of read around it, but we're going to start actually after it, right, in verse 30, actually. Let me get a sip of water. Now, Paul doesn't devote a lot of writing to details of the new creation, but, uh, but this chapter is really the climax of all of 1 Corinthians. One of his longest letters, one of his most significant letters, and I would think the thing that ties all of it together. Um, so let's focus on it. Let's read it. But first, a quick exercise. Pretend you're an investor. How much money do you want? <laughs> Full return. All right, 10 bucks. Is that good enough? Okay, hold your $10 in your hand. I just gave you 10 imaginary dollars. Put it in your pocket. Okay, got it? All right. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. Are you tracking so far? we can be honest with each other, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. Us, right? And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. or with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. If you've got this, read this together with me. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Great. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Quite a passage, yeah? So just like a seed, which is kind of small and meaningless, right, is planted in the ground, can turn into trees, flowers, right, bushes that bear fruit. Take that $10 that you got, yeah, put it in the bank, and what'd you get? (laughs) $10.03, that's a good rate. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Immortality. This is a, oh man, pretty triumphant passage, don't you think? I'm being serious. You can be excited about this. The resurrection of the body is a real thing. In fact, it must be because Jesus was raised from the dead. If Jesus was not raised from the dead or if there was no resurrection, Jesus couldn't be raised from the dead. But we know that he was raised from the dead, so there must be resurrection. And if there's resurrection and we're in Christ, then we'll be raised with him. Which means our little tiny bodies, which are just seeds... When planted into the ground, compare the glory of, I don't know, a candle to the glory of the sun. When the seed goes into the earth, it sprouts up and it becomes something better, more beautiful. The question, how will it happen, is kind of overwhelmed by the reality that something good, better, greater than we can imagine is going to happen. But that's not the question for us today. The question of how the debt I raised is not really answered by Paul, nor is it going to be attempted to be answered by me. The question that I want to address today is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? What's your limit? You've got $10. You gotta put it in the bank. What if it was more? End times, like we talked about a little bit ago, is a complicated subject. In academia, we call it eschatology. We call the return of Christ the parousia. We call all sorts of things big words, tribulation, millennial reign, right? And a portion of this series may have felt like a complicated kind of classroom lesson, right? Sure, I'm concerned about the tribulation. Some, it kind of stays in our mind, but if the pattern holds, I'll die before it comes. But we're not dealing with academia. We're dealing with the patterns of the world and the reality of our life right now. And what do we do with the reality that our bodies will be raised and that I can think of my life, my body now, as a seed. We're not just dealing with things that might happen someday. It's the centerpiece of our faith and of our life, and it's grounded not in an idea of a future thing, but in the reality of a man who was raised up from the ground. And what happened to his body is going to determine what happens to our bodies. And that's kind of our preface. So the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? So we're going to start by looking at the people of 1 Corinthians because they were the ones who needed to hear this first. What do you say? Anyone ever been to Corinth? A couple? I've not been to Corinth, but my wife's been to Corinth and I'm super jealous of her. So we've got a map in case you're confused. Uh, or there is the Mediterranean Sea, right? So the red line is the Roman Empire. And you see the boot of Italy, just to the east of that, still part of Rome, formerly Greece. And we're going to actually zoom in on that portion, just west of the Aegean Sea, with our next slide. And right here, is Corinth. You see, it's right next to Athens, and it's a really peculiar spot. It's got these huge harbors on each side. One of the fascinating things about Corinth was that it actually had a harbor on each side of its town, and then one of the bigger roads in the nation. It was ancient and famous, being settled uh, strategically as a traveling, trading location, a city of commerce, and super-duper-duper old. But about 146 BC, the Romans actually destroyed it. They were conquering More or less everything at that point, earlier on in their reign. Um, But it had previously been regarded as the capital of grace. And Julius Caesar in about 46 BC, so right around this time when Paul would be writing, shortly after likely or shortly before, decided to rebuild it. And he built it magnificently, such that it was called, right? Sparta had their incredible militaries. Athens had their, their philosophies and their, these sorts of things. But they called it the City of Grace because it was just that beautiful. Uh, and, and it because it was such a trading co- uh, town, had influx of ideas almost unlike any other city. Athens certainly was close. You see how close they are to each other. Um, But it was famous for its philosophies. And it was famous for, uh, in some ways, the kind of cult following of the philosophers. And so someone would come in with a new idea, um, and everyone would say, oh, this is the cool new idea, we want to follow that idea, or agree with that idea. And then they would go to the... uh, the, the courtyards, and they would debate, and rhetoricians would speak, and they would gain followers, etc., etc., etc. It was known for incredible trade, and with trade comes immigration. So it was an incredibly diverse culture. People from all around the Roman Empire, which was most of the world, lived here, and again, shared ideas, shared culture, shared things, and you could kind of adopt different cultures as you saw fit. Uh, and it was also really, really, really famous uh, for. Uh, the same thing Las Vegas is famous for. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sex, uh, gambling. The temple of Aphrodite was there, and it was full of temple prostitutes, and so you could go and you could engage in a variety of physical behaviors in order to pleasure. Uh, it was quite a town. Mildly familiar. When Paul arrived at the city... About 50 AD, he was coming from Athens, and in Athens, he had a really rough time. Things didn't go as well. He tried as he wanted to, that is. He tried to speak with really uh, you know, eloquent, uh, articulate words and arguments and uh, kind of fell flat. And so he was defeated, and he came by the guidance of the Holy Spirit to Corinth, and according to the book of Acts... It says he spoke to them only, and according to the book of 1 Corinthians, using simple language, right, and the power of God to proclaim to them the good news that Jesus Christ died and was raised and ascended into heaven. After staying for some over 18 months, he left to continue his mission. And then around 52, 56 AD, so again, about 10 years after Julius Caesar really rebuilt this, Apollos visited Corinth. Apollos is the guy, uh, have we talked about Apollos? Apollos is one of the the major characters of the book of Acts who comes and continues the work of the apostles after after them. Uh, A lot of scholars believe that the book of Hebrews was maybe written by Apollos. But Apollos visited Corinth, watered what Paul had planted to continue the seed metaphor, but uh, instead of teaching quietly and humbly and through demonstrations of power, Apollos came to him, or to the church in Corinth, a lot the same way that that Paul initially went to Athens. He was eloquent. He was educated. He was smart. He spoke really well. And some people preferred it, right? Although Apollos taught the exact same thing as Paul, there started to grow factions between the people groups. Some follow Apollos. Some follow Paul. Some follow Peter. Some are so haughty to say, we follow none, we follow Jesus, right? Which I guess is okay. But people continue to come, continue to teach both Christian or Jewish doctrines or these sorts of things, and the church in Corinth, instead of being grounded and planted in the one true gospel, started to think of the gospel like they did all of the other cultures and, and, and ideas and philosophies that happen to come through on the ships, right? Oh, this is a good one. Oh, this is a fun one. Oh, I like this one. I'll linger on this for a while. Great. Paul's upset. <laughs> Karl Barth, famous author, says so eloquently of this situation, the main defect of Corinthian conditions from this point of view... Paul sees to consist in the boldness, assurance, and enthusiasm with which they believe, not in God, but in their own belief in God, and in particular, leaders and heroes. Does that make sense? Let me read that again. The main defect of the Corinthian conditions from this point of view Paul sees to consist in the boldness, the assurance, and enthusiasm with which they believe not in God, but in their own belief in God and in particular leaders and heroes. And the fact that they confuse belief with specific human experiences, convictions, trends of thought and theories, the special human content of which logically makes the recollection of particular human names unavoidable. Again, the difficulty believing in God or believing in your ideas. Let me give you an example. Hmm. Hmm. Is anyone here relatively strong and brave? All right. Get, another, get a friend who's also strong and brave. Uh, You can stay over here. Yeah, stay right there. All right. So the difference, I think, a way of articulating this is the language of belief and trust. Yeah? Yeah. I believe that they're there. Right? I'm sure of it. In fact, I can actually turn around and see them, so I'm good. (laughs) Do I trust them? And actually, the language of the scriptures, whenever it talks about belief, is, is primarily the same language that we would call trust. Do I trust, especially these two, right? Because I, 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 what do you think? Am I good? Is it good enough that I just believe that they're there? I believe they'd catch me. Ready? But do I trust them? You ready? Are you standing in the right spot? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, you caught me so high. That was really easy. But there's a profound difference, right, between, oh, between believing and between trusting something. And I think the temptation of the Corinthian believers and often of us is to be content saying we believe something, Right? What are interest rates on bank accounts right now? (laughs) All right. Great, I believe it. What am I going to do with my money? The difficulty specifically with resurrection, which is what our topic is today, and with what the Corinthians were trying to uh, wrestle with. Some are saying that there is no resurrection. Okay. Well, how are the dead really raised? I mean, right? That body that we buried is probably not going to look so hot when it comes up out of the ground, you know? How are the dead raised? This doesn't make any sense. Or in a modern way of thinking, right? All of the, the, the components of my body Uh, when I die, go into the earth and decompose and then they become part of a tree or maybe even another creature somehow, right? Is it really fair even to assume that I could get my particles back? They're being used by someone else, you know? This line of thinking. How are the dead raised? This doesn't make any sense. But I think that in many ways these are excuses. Is it that hard to imagine that the one who created all things can also give us new bodies (laughs) the difficulty is a matter of trust the difficulty is not a matter of believing these things are coming if we go back to our map the difficulty or not our map our timeline the difficulty is trusting God with my body do I trust God with my body Do I trust God with the earth? The difficulty with believing resurrection, with trusting that God will raise you from the dead, is that it requires death first. Right? The Corinthians are arguing... Right, maybe Jesus was just raised from the dead like, like Elijah, like he was just kind of brought up. He was hung on the cross, but right before he died, he was zipped up. No, oh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe he was actually just like a spirit, so it just looked like he died. Or maybe when we talk about resurrection, no, he died. In either of these cases, in any excuse... Gnostic, anything else? Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. To to say that Christ is raised means that Christ has died. And if Christ died, unfortunately, we might need to die too. The Corinthians lived a life of relative wealth, of incredible knowledge. And they wanted to take advantage of the philosophies of the world. When we think about resurrection, we have to think about investment. Is the cost worth the reward? There's a lie, uh, and I hate to call it a lie, uh, but I think it's appropriate, that we need to talk about called Pascal's Wager. Have you ever heard of this? It's a box. A quadrilateral, if you will. So imagine your four quadrants. And Pascal was a philosopher, and he said, all right, there's either two possibilities. God is real or he's not. And then there's two other possibilities. You believe in God or you don't believe in God. So if God is not real, or if God is real, rather, and I believe in him, then great. That's awesome. And if he's not real and I believe in him, then whatever. That's fine. And if God is not real and I believe in him, then whatever, that's fine. And if God is not real and I don't believe in him, then whatever, that's fine. So the only downside is not believing on the off chance that God is real. Therefore, logically, you might as well just believe, right? What's there to lose? Does that make sense? Unless you're in China. Unless you are born into a Muslim family. Why not believe in God? What's there to lose? Oh, your family, your job. You might be tortured and imprisoned. We watched that video of Song uh, Chul a few weeks ago as we, uh, as we looked into um, the persecuted church in the world and we prayed for them. There's no cost. What's the cost? Might as well just believe. There's no cost unless you're a first century Jew. There's no cost because we live in Corinth. There's no cost because we live in a place where we can believe, where we can enjoy the cultures and the philosophies and kind of pick and choose, and we can actually stand here on our little belief pedestal and kind of be relatively happy, and maybe we can talk about it to people who disagree with us, but what do we do when we have to fall backwards? I have the privilege of working Uh, or I had a lot of my friends in Michigan uh, are house church planters. And they're trying to take really seriously what it means to follow Jesus and to do the church the way that Jesus led the church. And the early church worked and functioned. And so they use the words of Jesus regularly, words about the cost of discipleship. And they say, hey, do you want to follow Jesus? Well, this is what it costs. Before you say yes, before we baptize you, you need to know you might lose your job you might lose your friends. You might not make nearly as much money as you were planning on making. Or if you do, you probably won't get to keep it for yourself if you really want to follow Jesus with integrity. What's the cost? What do we do with our bodies? God wants your bodies, not just you to have ideas in your head that are somewhat agreeable to him. God wants your life, meaning, again, your bodies, what you do with it, the time that you spend, the space that you take up. It's the same with creation. This is why, can we go back to the timeline real quick? I know I made it hard for you. Everyone give uh, Stephen a round of applause. In the age to come, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Not just an obliteration of the old one, but the same as with our bodies, like a seed that is planted and becomes something even more when heaven and earth come together. It will be even more. But God wants creation. He wants us to care for creation. We talked about this that this series. The Corinthians wanted to only offer him their minds. An escape from the body an escape from the world. God's call is the exact opposite. In Jesus Christ, we are not immune from death. In Jesus Christ, we pass through death. Right? We don't avoid death. We die. But God doesn't lose us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who also endured quite a cost for his faith, he lived during World War II as a, uh, as a Christian who was resisting the Nazis in Germany, right? He said this Nowhere is it written that God became an idea, a principle, a program, a universally valid proposition. Or a law, but it is written that God became a human. What does it mean for you to start dismantling the ways in which you've reduced God and the Christian faith to a set of ideas in your mind, to a set of ideas about the future, and instead to say, I trust that God has my future, therefore, God, have my body, and my life, and my time. Satan is, if you start to do that, going to tell you all sorts of lies. The first one is, is he's going to say it's not worth it. It's not worth it. That $10 you have, you know what you could get with that? On Craigslist? Like 15 free pianos. <laughs> maybe a mattress. <laughs> and one and a half cups of coffee. It's not worth it is what Satan will tell you. But ask any farmer, is it worth it to hold on to your seed? No, you gotta plant it. Satan's gonna tell you, the reward is already here, right? God's provision, God's providence, if you just act rightly and justly in the world, then you'll receive all your reward, and that's great. Sometimes that's true. Again, a lot of the time it's not. Be willing to trust. The other lie, there's no cost, right? This is the one that we're told. There's really no cost. It's, it's just, just, just keep it to yourself. Believe it. You'll be saved someday. And it's true. It is by faith alone and not by works. But there's a cost to following Jesus. In fact, it looks like taking on the life of Jesus, who was poor, who was hungry, who served the poor. He became a servant of all, right? It's selfish, Satan will tell you. To want eternal life, that sort of thing. No, it's not selfish. To give your life and your body to love one another, no matter the cost. There's no selfish in that. It's all in your head. Except it wasn't. Because as of first importance, as Paul says at the beginning of chapter 15, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. For what I received, I passed on as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He raised on the third day, and that He appeared to Cephas, to the twelve, then afterwards to me and to more than 500 others. Brothers and sisters, beloved of God, it's not in your head. The kingdom of God is a matter of power, not just of eloquent words and ideas. It is a matter of Jesus Christ himself being raised from the dead and therefore we too can trust that we will be raised from the dead. So follow Jesus. Offer Jesus your body. Let's go back to the chapter we've been reading. The part of it at least. Look back on verse 42 with me. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. What needs to happen to your body? But it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. But it is raised in power it is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body the status quo for faith in the name of Jesus Christ in this lifetime is not immortality and imperishability though we have the resurrection now it is perishability the norm Although there are many who received wealth and other abundance in this world, the norm is dishonor. How do we know that's the norm? Because that's what Jesus experienced. That's what the apostles experienced. The norm is weakness. And so again, I encourage you, trust God enough that you can be dishonored in this world. Trust God enough that you can be weak in this world. Pastor Eric read a verse last week about some bickering between members of the church who started to sue each other. And what was his phrase? Wouldn't you rather be wronged than do this sort of thing? Don't take them to court. It's easy to justify not being wronged in this world. It's easy to justify not being weak. It's easy to justify defending ourselves against dishonor and these sorts of things if we don't actually trust God with our future with the end of all things with our bodies but I invite you offer up your bodies to the Lord is it worth it? Abundantly yes and if not you just get Adam just as the first man Adam was to dust the last man will be to heaven but we who are born of Adam can also be born of the second Adam of Jesus And it all happens today right here at this table. We know what we do with our bodies matters, and we know that how we trust God in the meantime for the future matters because when Jesus was with his disciples, the last thing he told them was, this is my body, broken for you. And he gave it to them, and he said, eat. And he took a cup and he said, this is my blood. A new covenant poured for you. Drink. Let God take your body and your blood and drink and become one with him and trust him that he will take it But he won't leave it, but that that little seed, when it feels weak, when it feels dishonored, when it feels ashamed, when it feels burdened and stressed, when you're tired of waiting and you've grown impatient for justice, know that even in death, even in brokenness, God will restore all things. And so keep on. Do not grow weary. Put up our last verse, if you would, Stephen. I know I'm ringing you all around. therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these gifts to our body. Would you come and fill them with your Holy Spirit that they might be to us strength and endurance and even wisdom. Reminding us of what you've done and of what is to come. Uniting us with you in spirit and in truth and in body. And filling us with hope that you will come again to restore all things. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Elders, would you come forward? We will pass out today in cups. And wafers, we also have a, I don't know the whole pattern, gluten-free and other things free wafer if you so need. Uh, Hold on to your bread and your cup uh, and we will partake together. Things are ready.